my friends good afternoon good afternoon welcome aboard welcome aboard Thank you, ladies and gentlemen, for joining today. Afterlife. What in heaven does that really mean? And perhaps even more importantly, why is that relevant? I mean, practically speaking, this is a class about living with certainty. Right here in this terrestrial world, you don't need betachen when you get to the other world. The presence of God is abundantly obvious when we get there. Why is this even a discussion? It's not like we're talking about getting to the afterlife. It's about not only believing, but also trusting in the hereafter. Before I begin, I want to acknowledge very gratefully that uh, today's generous sponsorship by a dear friend and member of our community, Michelle Khan, who sponsors today's class, Afterlife, in loving memory, and, in her words, to celebrate the lives of her beloved mother on her yard site. Today, of course, is Rosh Chodeshvat. Her mother's yard site is Yud Shvat. Her name was Etel, the daughter of Harav Avraham Mendel, Zechernel of Racha, and Michelle also dedicates his class to the memory of her recently departed brother, Michael Kalman Ben Tzvi Mordechai Zechernel of Racha. He was Nifta and Rosh Chodesh Iyar, and that marks nine months today to his passing, as this is Rosh Chodesh Shvat. May the Neshamas have an Aliyah in the afterlife. And may our discussion about and our learning about why it's important for us to have not only emuna, but also betochen in the reality of the afterlife necessarily can and will make a world of difference in our here and now existence. Thank you, Michelle. So I want to begin with just taking a moment to speak about the greatness of Rabbeinu Bachaya. You know, we spend literally, literally endless amounts of time poring over every single word penned by the great Rabbeinu 
Shlomo Yitzchaki Rashi. And we should. We should. And the greatest minds have spent their entire life's, lifetimes devoted to understanding the profundity and the depth that is to be found in the words of Maimonides, Rambam, Rabbeinu Moshe ben Maimon Asfardi. You know, it is said that the great Rav Chaim of Brisk, Rav Chaim Halevi, one of the greatest geniuses of the last few hundred years, spent his whole life <laughs> analyzing Rambam, the precise nuances of Rambam. I once heard, and I never was able to corroborate this as a fact, but that the Rogachev Agorn, probably the greatest mind of the 20th century, or the first half of the 20th century, he, he used to go to sleep at night, he would say, a gute Nacht Rebbe, good night Rebbe, referring to the Rambam. And, and these Torah luminaries, these prodigies, spent their lives poring over every single nuance that's found in the words of the Rambam. We have dozens, dozens of commentaries that were written on Rashi, trying to understand the slightest detail down to our very time. The Rebbe devoted hundreds of hours public teaching of Rashi on the hairline, on the nuance. If Rashi changed or omitted or slightly tweaked something, it was a world of ideas and ideals, an enormous amount of profundity and depth contained within it. My dear friends, Rashi is born just 10 years prior to Rabbeinu Bechai I. The Rambam isn't born until nearly 80 years after Rabbeinu Bechai I. Rabbeinu Bechai ben Yosef ibn Pekuda is the acknowledged master on what his book is called, Chovat Halavavot. When it comes to our emotional devotion to God. Everything from trust to faith, from love to awe, from passion to exuberance. Rabbeinu Bechaya is the master. His magnum opus, Chayvus al and specifically the portion of his book, the segment that's dedicated to Betochen, has continued to remain the gold standard. There are half a dozen major Rishonim who wrote treatises on Emuna and Betochen. People like Nachmanides, Ramban, Rabbeinu Yena, people like Rabbeinu Bachaya II. Everything always goes back to Rabbeinu Bachaya. And yet, he wrote a book that's very difficult to understand. It's difficult to understand sometimes, not because it seems difficult, but because it seems so overly simple. To be sure, there are about a dozen commentaries that were written, authored over the years, on the Chavis Halavavas, and the, specifically the Shara Betochen. Our Rebbe himself devoted many hours to clarifying fine points of the Shara B'tochen's thesis. So it bothers me so much that when it comes to two sentences, that's all we're going to learn today. I'm telling you before we begin. Just two sentences of the Shara B'tochen. I, I couldn't find Pshat. 
Never mind the, the recent English translations that just gloss over this. Don't explain anything. Even the commentaries that were written before, it's like, it drove me crazy. I, I couldn't understand this. And, and there was very little help. So I had to really break my head. And before I begin, let me say this. I don't know, I don't know if this is the pshat, if this is the, the, the true meaning or the true intention of the great Rabbi Nebuchadnezzar. I, I don't know. I don't know. Having said that, what I'm going to share with you today is not my own silly ideas. I'm going to introduce you to some of the profoundest spiritual ideas that have been developed over the last few centuries, specifically in the corpus, the writings of Hasidus Chabad. Very deep stuff. Whether this is the Pshat Nebed I can't tell you with certainty, but this I can tell you, what I'm sharing with you, is true Torah. And I think, I'm just a little guy, but I think that this is the Pshat, or it is a Pshat, in the words of Rabbeinu Bechaya. We have multiple ways of understanding Rashi, multiple ways of understanding Rambam, and so many other great Rishonim. Perhaps somebody else has a different way of understanding these words, but this is the conclusion that I've come to after many, many, many hours of uh, brain-racking efforts. And the last nuance I want to add is that I based my thesis, my understanding of Rabbeinu Bechaya, on the words of the most enigmatic of commentaries written on the Shara Betochen, the Ne'er Der Bakredish. I talked about him in the previous episode. I can't seem to find anything about him. I, I just know that his name was Rabbi Moshe. He was the son of a Rabbi Reuven, and he was a Rav, or a Magid, in Yorbarg. And I could find the town on Google, but there's nothing Jewish left there. And what we know is that he wrote a commentary which is based on and is a synergy of drush and sod. In uh, the vernacular, homily and Kabbalah. It's uh, astounding to me that it was only published once. Only published once. I mentioned this in a previous episode. Just once in 1790, and only recently has seen the light of print again. So what I'm going to tell you today, at least my supposition that this is the words of Rabbeinu Bechaya, are based on the Neder Bakredish's commentary. Because the Neder Bakredish throws a number of verses at us, which I, I can't find any other way to understand, if not from the prism of Kabbalah, Lurianic teaching, and especially as it's been amplified and elucidated with Teres Achsidus. So, with those little, with those little prefaces, any questions here? Okay, Chodesh Tov, everybody. Those who are bothering us, please go bother somebody else. Okay, on to the study now. So, if you're if you're following along in the um, recent recently released Kihat version, we're on page 111. 
Uh, I, I have to tell you, I, I don't think it's going to help you very much, but it's a good place to start. So the fourth chapter, the longest, most exhaustive chapter of this entire work, opens by identifying different ideas or matters in which we are obligated to place our trust in Hashem. Now, it's extremely important to have clarity as to the different ways or circumstances and situations in which we have to apply our betachen. Why? <laughs> uh, very simply, there's a, there's a tension between trust and our efforts. There's a tension. And the tension is, if I'm not doing this anyway, if God's making everything happen, why do I have to work so hard? If Hashem blesses me, and everything I do, so I did something. I'll make an investment. Yeah, but you didn't make multiple investments. You didn't, you didn't play the market. You didn't, <laughs> what do I have to do that for? What do you mean? If you want to make an investment, you have to invest in a wide array of things. So if some of the stocks will go south, some of the others might go north. You have to diversify. A person says, I don't have to diversify. Anyway, it's in the hands of Hashem. Whatever God decides goes up, goes up. What goes down, goes down. And no amount of my strategy or acumen is going to make a difference. So what do I have to make any differences for? What do I have to, what I have to spend time thinking about this? Why do I have to get up at 4 a.m. and look at the hang sank and see how the markets are reacting in the Far East and then look at how the markets open here and then make my decisions? Whatever. It's like uh, I make a decision. I invest in something. And if Hashem wants, that's where He's giving me my parnasa from, right? Wrong. Really? Why? <laughs> because Hashem says you have to make the right efforts. The hishtadlus. In a recent class that I delivered right here on this channel, on the Gemara in Mesechet Megillah, and you should go back and watch it, it's called Dining with the Devil, we really concluded with a powerful betachen lesson. How Esther, it turns out, has multiple reasons for strangely inviting Haman to dinner, but she had a strategy. And there was all kinds of bases she was covering. And of course, we know that everything works out. But interestingly, despite the fact that she had all of these things in mind, not a single one of them worked the way she thought they would. It's like a person who diversifies, invests in 16 different fields. The energy sector and the mining sector, the gambling sector and the medicine or, or pharmaceutical sector. All the sectors. And there was one sector they didn't invest in, but somebody gave them a gift of a stock. And that invest, that area, the sector they didn't invest in, that's the one that went through the roof. That basically sums up the story of Esther, because all of her strategy, brilliant as it was, none of it came to fruition. Not for any fault of her own, because Hashem decided to make a miracle that night. And the Persian king couldn't sleep. Maharil the great halachic expert of the world of Ashkenaz, really the foundation of the Ramah and the Shulchan Aruch as we know it, 
in the Ashkenaz world, he says, oh, now raise your voice. When you get to this verse, Allah, raise your voice. Tokfeshelness, based on the words of the Gemara. The Gemara says, this is where the miracles start to happen. Up until now, is you know, nature taking its course. Now the miracles are expressing themselves in the fullest way, not with seas that split open or fire and ice that rain from the heavens, but with a king who can't sleep. So Esther makes the calculations. The calculations happen not to work, but that doesn't mean she did the wrong thing. And this is hard for people. It's hard for them to wrap their heads around. At what point do I stand down and say, you know what, this is is in Hashem's hands. I can't do anything else. And at what point do I say, hey, you have no right to bow out. You need to still make more effort. The Mittler Rebbe, in his preface to Pekeach Ivrim, I think that's where it is, he says that if a person invests himself too much in material pursuit, so he's so busy doing business that he doesn't come to Shol to Davin and he doesn't learn Torah, or Chas Shalom isn't careful about Shabbat because he's making money, then he's in danger of losing his wealth. Why? Because these things are just what we call kalim, vehicles or conventions. It's like, uh, like an envelope for the blessing that comes from God. It's like a garment. And he says, if garments are too big, you can't move in them. So you have to make sure your garments fit. Garments that fit are helpful. Too much involvement in business and material pursuit. It's like garments that are too big. So the Rebbe writes to somebody in a letter that just as garments can be too big, you could also have garments that are too small, too skimpy. You don't show up at a wedding in swimwear attire. It's not appropriate. You need to be a little more dressed, covering the subject. The point? (laughs) Simple. You can't under-engage. You can't under-invest either. So how do I know where that line is? That's good you asked. Rabbeinu B'chaya is going to answer that question dimension by dimension because each situation has a different need for Betachen's application insofar as my ishtadlos, my efforts are concerned, and the amount of trust they put on Hashem. That's all fine. I essentially recapped what we've learned up until this point. So this could be in material pursuit. It could be in the performance of a mitzvah, a bridge to eternity. Even a mitzvah. I can only do my part. I can't guarantee or assume that it's going to be successful. I can do my best. And we've learned previously you actually have positive consequences from the mitzvah, not for the action, but rather for the efforts that you made. And here, Rabbeinu Bechaya, having spoken about the involvement in a whole array of things, from interpersonal relationship, from working on your marriage, from engaging with your children, from providing for your loved ones, health and wellness, a whole array of things, and and the mitzvahs we have to do, which involve ourselves, 
or mitzvahs that involve other sometimes passive participants or recipients of our largest. Then Rabbeinu Bechayi goes back to what we started already earlier. And he says, and then there's the inyon elam habo. You have to trust in eternity. Why do I need to trust in eternity? To my deep frustration, nobody said anything except the Neder Bar-Kedish. The Neder Bar-Kedish, in the beginning of Perik Ravi, when we divided the category broadly into two categories, we said in Yonei Elam Hazeh, things about this world, and in Yonei Elam Abba, the Neder Bar-Kedish at the time said, he evo- invoked a verse, Chelki Hashem Amra Nafshi, and several episodes ago, I devoted myself to trying to understand the meaning of Olam Haba, the world to come, and the notion or idea of misguided trust. Where would trust come in? Why is trust necessary? But <laughs> that episode was only mentioned. There's another verse that the Neder Bar quotes, which I didn't get a chance to get to at all, which is good. I'm going to spend time in it today. And the other verse is, which means somebody who is banished will never be entirely banished. That's what he says. What that has to do with eternity? It's not really clear. I'll remind you that the Nehda Bakredish said that Iker Habitochen. We talked about this. Your primary need for trust is not in business, not in relationship, not in medicinal or health pursuits. No. Your primary issue of trust is eternity. What does that mean? Let's remember that we're not talking about emunah, we're not talking about belief now, we're talking about trust. And the difference as we've copiously illustrated and explained time and again in previous episodes is that out of emuna a person may not be moved to do the right thing. The most famous example of this is the thief who the Gemara, the Talmud tells us, the sages said, may well be crying out to God to help him, believing that God could give him success as he makes his or her heist. But if you believe that God can make miracles and that God cares about you, isn't engaged, and you're in the foxhole, so you're crying out, then why wouldn't you just rely on Hashem to provide for you without stealing? Why wouldn't you say, do something, and God, the same God who can save you from getting caught, the same God can save you from making a bad investment and, and make a living, do something honest. It's not a question. Well, that's, it's not a contradiction, I should say. person says, yes, I believe it, but that's uh, as far as I believe it. And Muna is a funny kind of thing. It's a strange conviction. I mean, who are we fooling? I'm pretty certain all of you believe in Hashem. You're still with me. I'm like, what? Almost a half hour into this, or 25 minutes into this? You're still watching? You, you better believe in Hashem. Like, why would you be interested in listening otherwise? I, I know I believe in Hashem. 
And yet, we do some silly things, inappropriate things. But if you believe in God, so why do you do those inappropriate things? You believe, don't you? Well, yes, but uh, the Yetzirah, and there's life, and somebody stepped on my toes, and somebody promised me A, B, and C, and I was excited to get uh, X, Y, and Z. Life happens. Stuff gets in the way. So emuna has to be translated into betochen, which this is possibly the meaning of the idea which is talked about in Hasidus, that the emuna has to be nizun, it has to be nurtured, it has to be nourished, it has to be developed, and it becomes betochen. And as we talked about in the previous episode, this is like the fruit. The tree has to be curated, taken care of, fed, nurtured, and then it produces the fruit. The fruit is betochen. The fruit is betochen as how we live our lives. So why do I have to have betochen in the world to come? I need betochen in this world. I'm going out to work. And I'm filled with anxiety. I don't know if I'll succeed. I borrowed a lot of money. I'm investing it. If I lose this, not only do I not have my loved ones, I'm going to be in debt. I'm going to be owing all this money I borrowed. I'm very anxious. So comes David HaMelech and says, Betach Bashem, what are you doing? Where's your trust? And Rabbeinu B'chai explains that this means that you're not anxious. You're not worried. You're not concerned. Why not? Because I rely on God. I put all my trust in Hashem. As we've talked about it great length previously. So, in Yonah Elam Habba, I need to trust. How does that change my life today? I mean, clearly, Rabbeinu B'chaya has to believe that it changes my life today. I'm asking you the question, how? I, I can't tell you how much it frustrates me that nobody explains this. It bothers, it bothers me terribly. I thought maybe the, the art scroll would say something. Nothing. L- literally nothing. There's nothing here. All they do in a footnote is tell you that there's two categories of Olam Haba. Olam Haba matters do not have subcategories. Yeah, thank you very much. That's really helpful. I mean, I could kind of notice that, that when it came to Chelek Aleph, the first part, Achad Mehem, which is Elam Haza, that it broke down into no less than five different levels, five different dimensions. All right, very nice. Elam Haba, he says. Pardon, we, 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 we had previously three which were only materially oriented, two which were bridges to eternity or mitzvah-oriented things we do in this world. Okay. It's still it's a level of trust, what I leave in Hashem's hands, what I do. But then, then he goes on to say, what about the matters of the world to come? He says, this you're not, you have to divide in two. You have to know where to place your trust. You know, it's not the same trust you place in one dimension of the world to come as in the other dimension of the world to come. What? What does that mean? What does it mean that Elam Haba is Yichok Lushnechalokim? That I have to divide Elam Haba into two categories. He says, well, you know, Elam Haba has two categories. The classification of matters of world to come is that one is that one category of eternity or the world to come is the reward that's commensurate with the efforts that a person made in this world. And the second is. That the second is that it's bestowed upon Hashem 
על החסידים והנביאים לא אלם הבא, for חסידים and for prophets. I don't know if I'm the chassid of Rabbeinu Bechai, I try to be a chassid. I'm definitely not a prophet. What am I even learning this for? If this second level of schar, which is not measured strictly in accordance with the level of mitzvahs that one did, but rather it is beyond what a person did, and it's only applicable for who Rabbeinu Bechai called a thousand years ago, a chassid, or a navi, a prophet, what does that have to do with me? This book isn't written for Hasidim and Nevi'im. This book is written for everybody. The argument can be made that it's written in abundantly simple language in Arabic. Why? Because most Jews were not Hasidim and Nevi'im. That's why. They weren't super pious or learned. And they certainly weren't prophets. This was written for people who couldn't even read Hebrew. So in case you think that I'm talking to you about things which are way beyond what you could possibly imagine or hope to understand, think again. Rabbeinu Bechaya wrote this for everybody. Evidenced by the fact that he wrote it in a language that everybody could speak. So why in heaven is he telling me I have to trust that there's reward? But if I believe this reward is not good enough? I understand how betochen, when it comes to medicine, for example, makes a world of difference. I understand. People place their trust in medical professionals. It's a big mistake. The greatest medical professional can make a mistake. So you're mistaken by placing your trust in him. Who should you place your trust in? In HaKadosh Baruch Place your trust in God. Not in the surgeon. Not in the oncologist, in Hashem. Well, in that case, why should I look for a big doctor, a specialist, a person who does this all the time, as long as somebody is a doctor, so that it's, uh, it'll be Hashem's convention? The answer is that there's an amount of hishtadlut, our part, the role we need to play. Then there's the role that Hashem plays. He'll choose to do what he chooses to do. That doesn't exonerate you from doing the best you could do, or me, or any of us. We need betachin there. In fact, it's a fraught endeavor. So many of us fail daily, hourly, when it comes to our businesses, thinking that it's our efforts, our hard work, our acumen, our strategy, our talent that brought us the profit. But it's not so. Because sometimes, with all of the aforementioned, we fail. So I wonder how that happened. Ah, it wasn't my fault. That was somebody else's fault. I did all the right things. Somebody else ruined it. Circumstances beyond my control. That's always going to be the case. Oh, it's Murphy's Law. Who's Murphy? What does that even mean? Everything that happens, happens. Well, in that case, why am I knocking myself out? I want to work from 9 to 5. I should work from 9 to 9.15. And then go to do whatever I want. Go back to learn Torah all day. I did. I worked for 15 minutes. I did my part. Now Hashem will make miracles happen. Is it possible that a few clicks on the computer in a span of 15 minutes could yield me profit that will carry me through the month? Not only it's possible. It happens all the time. People spend days and days, weeks, months working on something. And the thing that took 15 minutes, that's where the profit came from. And all the months went nowhere. So... Why don't I just reach out to one little thing and check and that's all? 
that's not the way it works. <laughs> There's a beautiful story that I once heard in the name of the chief of the Rebbe's secretary, Rabbi Chodokov, who was really the, um, the Rebbe's general, so to speak, in the army of Shlichus. And all of the original shluchim were trained under his tutelage and given continuous direction from him. So the, uh, a certain shliach in the early years, this is like in the late 50s, maybe in the mid-early mid 60s, Rabbi Chodikov has a conversation with him, and he says, uh, what's happening? What's happening? Um, and he says to him, well, it was like um, very demoralizing. He made this whole event, and one person came. So Rabbi Chodikov said, so what would you do? What I do? Yeah, one person show up for an event, he says, I canceled. So Rechadikov said, what's wrong with you? You make an event. You advertise and you, you, you promote. And a hundred people show up. Of the hundred people who show up for your event, ten people you actually maintain some kind of connection with. Some kind of relationship that stimulates. Let's say a hundred new people came in. If you get ten. You're doing very well. 10% is a very good return. Of those 10 people, maybe five people will, will really stay on, so to speak, and be interested in learning more and doing more, changing their lives. And of those five, maybe one person will really transform himself entirely, which is what it's all about. Transformation. Transform ourselves, transform others. Transformation for the better. So Rabbi Chodikov said to him, here Hashem sent you that one person without having to go through 99, and you sent them away. Now, does that mean we should make events for one person? And the one person who shows up, that must be the one. That's ridiculous. Of course not. We're required to make the event for 100 or 1,000 people. We're trying to reach out. We're trying to share Yiddishkeit. How will it be successful? Who will be inspired? None of us know. It's, it's true in every iota of the field of shlichut, trying to positively impact the lives of others and change the horizon, the Jewish horizon in the future. It's always like that. If it happens to be that you put all the effort in and one person came, maybe that's the one person. But you need to make all the effort. That all works in the terrestrial reality. When it comes to heaven, I have to divide this? I have to have two categories? I mean, the, 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 the art school commentary is like, hmm, the two categories of Elam Abba do not have subcategories. Gee, I wonder why. What do I do without the experts? It doesn't have subcategories. How do you want to subcategorize it? And what is it even supposed to mean? Why does it need to be discussed altogether? Why do I have to have trust that Hashem will give schar which is commensurate and schar which is transcendent? Schar, which measures itself in accordance with the mitzvahs, and reward, which is entirely beyond that. I don't even know what eternity has to do with the book of Betachen. The book of Betachen is a book of how to live my life now, here today. I'm telling about eternity for I have to trust that God will give me eternity. I have to think about Elam Haba all the time. Rebbeinu Bechaya himself, towards the end of the chapter, is going to talk about the Mishnah that says, Don't be like servants who are looking for a payback. Instead, You should be like somebody who serves out of love. That's what we talked about in the previous episode. 
somebody gets married and he says to the man or woman he's going to marry, what can you do for me? I marry you because you do something for me. Really? I thought you get married because you love somebody. I want to spend the rest of my life with you because you're a good cook. I want to spend the rest of my life with you because you're a good breadwinner. What does that mean? <laughs> it's like a terrible joke, they say, that this fellow, his father left him uh, $10 million, and this uh, amazingly beautiful woman is uh, running after him and wants to get married to him, and he says, you know, you know, like, uh, I was just thinking, uh, is the only reason that you're so interested in pursuing me, is it only because, because my father left me $10 million? Is that the only reason that you seem to be interested in marrying me? And she says, honey, I would marry you regardless of who left you the $10 million. Thank you very much. That's like a, a depiction of the lowest possible thing a person could do. Certainly in today's enlightened Western mind to get married for money, to get married for utilitarian purposes. It's about a relationship. It's about spending your life with the person you love, as we illustrated in great detail just in the previous lecture. In the previous episode. So now we have to be trusting about this, about this reward. And you have to know that there's different levels of reward. You have to trust. You know, God can do this. He's, he's a very rich God. He can give you reward that's commensurate. And he can also, if you happen to be a prophet. So, you know, it's really important. If you happen to be a prophet, you're probably very worried about reward. Because Hasidim and Nevi'im only do what they do for utilitarian purposes, for payback. And they're only Hasidim and Nevi'im because they're not only going to get rewarded commensurate to their efforts. Ha! No, they're going to get rewarded way beyond. That's why they do it. That's why they're good yidden. That's why Hashem chose them to be prophets. Because they're awaiting their reward like a little dog with its panting. No, <laughs> is my reward here yet? No, 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 patience. Keep go jumping through hoops. It's going to be a fantastic reward when it's all over. So we're like a circus animal who's going to turn himself into a pretzel because he's getting a reward. What? My, my, my head is exploding. I mean, the cut edition is mum. Zero. Zero is nothing. He writes, reward in the world to come is given for a person's good deeds in this world. All right? But there are also special individuals who, as a result of a strong devotion to Hashem, are rewarded in a manner which is not commensurate with the deeds. This reward comes from God's kindness. Wow. And I should trust in that, right? And I should be thinking about it all day. Really? Seriously? At least here in the cotton edition, they say, they talk about, you know, special individuals. Here, I took a look in the art scroll and put, he puts over there. He says, because these tzaddikim develop intense love for Hashem during the lifetimes. First of all, it doesn't say anything about tzaddikim. It says chasidim and neviim. I don't know why it's that we have to go away from the verbiage that Rebbeinu Bechaya's work shows up in. Even if... Rabbi Yehuda ibn Tibbin translated as such, but like, like, why do you have to put a new word in? I, don't, I just don't know what that means even. But he, now he made them into tzaddikim. So they have an intense love for Hashem, and they devote themselves to a service on a level that's beyond personal obligations. He responds in kind by lovingly rewarding them beyond the measure of their deeds. Uh, it sounds to me like that is the measure of the deeds. A tzaddik has betochen that Hashem will show reciprocal love in Elam Haba. I, 
I, I don't know what to make of this. So this is where I was last night. I, I was so distraught. I have to think about it this way, think about it that way. And the only, the only commentary, the only commentary, again, is this mystery Rebbe Moshe, the Neder Bakodesh. So he says like this. He says, Agmul Haroi, what does it mean, the appropriate reward, the commensurate reward? He says, this is, he means to say, Poyal Odom, Yishalem Lekifim Aisaf. A person's efforts will get remunerated in accordance with whatever he did. Lefim Aisaf, Shalasa Beilamaza. God's not going to give anything for free. You know, you punch a card. You'll be rewarded as per your efforts. Is there anything else? What's so profound about that? So at the end, what we're going to learn, he's going to go through now seven steps to heaven, so to speak. That's the next episode. He, when he calls it Derech HaChesed, so he, there the Neder B'Kaidish says, what does it mean, Derech HaChesed? Yoiser more than what you accomplished. More than what you accomplished. And this is to be understood in the image of a verse that shows up in the book of Isaiah, Yeshayahu. That Yeshayahu Hanavi says, in the 64th chapter, in the third verse, no eye has seen this. You can't even imagine how fantastic this is. Only God. Only God knows what this is. For the one who hopes and yearns, he's going to get it. What does this mean? So Rashi quotes the Gemara that's found in Masechet Shabbat. On page 63. All the Nevi'im, all the prophets, described in lurid details what life will be like when Mashiach comes. But the world that comes after. This no eye can see. Mashmoi, what does that mean, no eye? Rashi says, Shum, Mashmoi, ain Shum Navi. No prophet can see this. The God will do to the one who yearns, who hopes in him. Just you, God. Only you. To hope. Tikva, he says. It's tikva. Hoping. Hoping. Nobody sees this. This is going to be something to the one who is mechaka umamin. The one who awaits. The one who believes. This is nothing about betachem. Nothing about betachem. The Yaakut Shemoni says that all of the consolation, all the comfort, that's, that's when Mashiach comes. But then, this is something that's beyond that. It's beyond that. The Gemara Ebrachas tells us, there's Gan, and then there's Aden. This is Aden. Nor Yetzim Aden. Then Aden already we got, but, but Lashkes are gone. Gan luchod, Eden luchod, the Gemara exhibits an an luchod. And the Mepharshim basically say it's talking about the future reality of Tchiyas HaMesim, the resurrection. 
So I'm, I'm like, what is, what is going on over here? How did the Nehdeb HaKadosh understand the business of God's chesed, of God's kindness, that's applicable only for chasidim and for neviim, only for the pious and only for the prophets? He said, that's the verse that talks about the resurrection, Olam Haba, the real Olam Haba. Yeah, but the real Olam Haba goes to everybody, not just to tzaddikim and chasidim. I'm getting like more confused as we move on here. The Mishnah says, Kol haba. Most of the Mepharshim explain this Mishnah that it's talking, Olam Haba is talking about the world of resurrection, the world of Tchiat in the world when bodies will re-inhabit, be re-inhabited by their souls. <laughs> and that's a reward that's going to be over the top. And nobody's ever seen it. And it's applicable for everybody. And the Nedab HaKadosh says, ah, that verse that talks about the whole Jewish people, that's for Hasidim and Avim. Oh my gosh, what is going on over here? <laughs> I told you before, it, it, it rankles me, it drives me crazy that how do you publish a book on Rebbein Abachaya? How, how, how do you just ignore this? How do you just like gloss over it? How, how can we continue, just move on and not bother understanding this? What is he telling us? What's his point? And if it's not relevant, he wouldn't say it. And if we just ignore it and move on, we're going to miss his point. And if it misses his point, then we're going to know, how come it didn't work? Because he didn't read my book, he'll say. So we got a problem. We had, we had to figure this out. All right, so I only have two clues to work with now. Okay, I'm, let's go through this together. I only have two clues to work with. Clue number one I have is the fact that Ne'er de Bar-Kodesh seemed to understand that this is connected to the verse, Lo Yidach Mimeno Nidach, which means that none who is banished will be internally banished. All right, I need, that's a clue to go on. I have to look, find how that verse is explained. And then the next clue we have is the fact that somehow the Ne'er Debakredesh sees the second level as epitomized by Isaiah's prophecy, no eye has seen this. Namely, the Olam Haba, the future world, in the post-Mashiach era known as the era of resurrection. That's the only two clues that I had to work with. All right, you know, I'm a, I'm a sourcey guy. Okay, let's go back to the sources. Okay. So what, 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 what does this Pasuk, what does it say? What's the Pasuk about? So it's, a, it's an awful story about the family of David HaMelech. This is documented in the book of Shmuel Beis, second book of Samuel. And in the Pasuk, the Psukim, the, the narrative is about the enmity between two brothers, two sons of King David. One's name is Avshalom, and the other's name is Amnon. So what happened there? It's a pretty sick story. 
It's a pretty sick story. So if you take a look in the, in the, in the book of uh, Shmuel Beis, and you go into verse, chapter 13, you hear a terrible story. A terrible story. Maybe even timely. So Amnon lusts his sister, half-sister. He feigns sickness. She should come take care of him. And he rapes her. He rapes her brutally. A real, like, story of sexual abuse. A terrible, terrible story. Rapes her. And then he hates her afterwards. And this girl is shattered. She's shattered. Her brother picks up on what happened with the, the half-brother. His sister was raped. And he is furious. To add insult to injury, the king becomes aware. He's very upset, deeply grieved. But he doesn't do anything. He doesn't get involved. Avshalom nurses a grudge and a hatred against this prince, Amnon, his half-brother. So Avshalom is not going to take this lying down. He's going to avenge his sister. Arranges a feast. It's those days they have these feasts. And they're going to do the shearing of the sheep. He invites the king. The king's not coming. He says, I want you to send the crown prince. You send Amnon. And Amnon, he's, he'll represent uh, he'll represent the king. And David Melch is not sure it's a good idea because he knows that these two brothers don't speak and they hate each other. But in the end, Shalom is very convincing, and and he sends him. And Shalom instructs his guys. He says, um, make sure he drinks a lot. You're going to kill him. Just be a man and do what you got to do. You're not going to be guilty. So I gave you the orders. And they listen. And Amnon was killed. And David Amalek hears about it. And David Amalek is very, very, very distraught. And he, he, he falls like away from his son. They're, they're now in a, they have, their relationship is very bad. So they're not talking. Now, David Amalek has a chief of staff and a, and a, and a, and a relative. His name is Yoav. And Yoav knows that David is very distraught over the, the destroyed relationship, that he's lost the relationship with Avshalom. And Yoav, who is the, the commander, he sees, he loves David Amalekh, he's very loyal to King David, he sees David is suffering on account of his detachment from Avshalom. So he decides to take matters into his own hand and try to fix or remedy the situation. Avshalom is a very prominent fellow, by the way. And he has all these uh, great aspirations. So unfortunately, Avshalom himself wants to be king at some point. It's a problem. At any rate, what Yoav does is he goes to the town of Tekoa, because it, would be some, it was very wise 
very capable women there, and he basically hires an actress. And he gives her lines. He says, you're going to play the role of a woman who's mourning for her husband, who only has two sons. The son's got a terrible fight. One son killed the other, and now my family wants to kill the murderer. And then I'll have nothing left in this world. He says, you dress in black, no cosmetics, you look distraught. This woman is very, very, very intelligent. We actually talked about this in an episode on Hanukkah, Tekoa, olive oil, wisdom. Anyway, she's, she's very adept. She has her lines, but she also knows how to think on her feet. And she delivers a, an, a, a, an Emmy performance, whatever they call it, those you know, Hollywood awards. An Oscar. She would get an Oscar. And she says to the king, like, what, what am I going to do here? And she gets the king to say, yes, it would be the law, but I understand your circumstances. I, I will protect. I will protect that son. So you won't be entirely bereft. And she says, like, how do I know? And she coaxes David and gets him to... And she never actually says, hey, I was just put up to this. But she does say, well, if the king believes that, then maybe the king should, like, do that in his own life. Because he also has a son who did something inappropriate. But he spurns him. He banished him. And David Amalek is like, okay, who put you up to this? Who put you up? Tell me the truth. Where, is, where, where are you coming from? And she acknowledges it's from Yoav. And the king is actually grateful because he has this whole narrative played out before him where he becomes the one to suggest exactly the path that he refused to think about before. Because you always have clarity with regard to somebody else. You can't see things that affects you in a personal way. So part of this woman's argument, she says to David HaMelech, in the end we all die, she says. Ki meis in the end, everybody's going to die. It's like water under the bridge. It's going to be like the water that's spilled on the ground. You can't gather up the water once it gets absorbed into the ground. God didn't just like harvest the soul without devising the thought that like it's not lost forever. Like, life to us is like, it's over, but for God, there's eternity, and the soul gets gathered up. So there's a certain eternity of the soul that's alluded to in these words. Most of the Mepharshim say it's not talking about that. Most of the Mepharshim understand this, that, that um, God doesn't kill a sinner, so the sinner shouldn't be entirely lost. And the way, and the, way the Mitzudah's David puts it, even Rashi says, nefesh. Hashem doesn't take a person from death. Maybe he shouldn't banish the banished one. Because anyway, in the end, life and death is in God's hands. And that was clearly, God abandoned him, so to speak, to that fate. See, see what Rashi saying. Take a look in the Mitzudais. 
she was remonstrating on behalf of Avshalom, says the Mitzudas. She said, we'll all die in the end. We'll all die in the end. So, what's the difference if somebody died a little sooner? A little sooner, a little later? In the end, we all end up in the same place. So what's the point of killing the murderer? In Cain, Oh, but the Torah says a murderer is guilty. Well, but in this situation, he's actually not guilty. Well, in her made-up story, there was no warning, there was no witnesses, there was no due process. They wanted to carry out a vigilante execution. But in Avshalom's situation, he didn't do it. He hired a hitman. So a taking of a soul is like water that's in the earth. As Mitsudas David puts it, if it's a question of theft, of taking somebody's valuables, good. Make indemnification. Repay. But How do you repay a life? The life is spent. The blood is spilt. And if you spill the blood of the murderer, does it bring the victim back? It gives you justice. You feel good. But does it actually bring your loved one back? Of course it doesn't. He remains dead as before. Like water that's in the ground. You can't put the water back in the bottle once it's been spilled on the ground. So in that case, what will you gain? You lost your son Amnon. Now you're losing another son of Shalom. What will you gain from that? It must be, she argued, that the death of Amnon will atone for his sin. And as far as Avshalom doing what he did, on some level, he was an agent of a higher force. And, and he deserved what he got. And the fact that Avshalom did what he did is not good, but not a reason to banish him. What's to be gained? Radak puts it a little different. He says, well, what's the point of more bloodshed? What's the point? Radak says, Let the banished one not be banished. If one died, will it help you if two are dead? Will you be a happier king if one son is dead and that broke your heart? Now you can have two dead sons? That's going to make you happier? What does this have to do with eternity? Or what was the Nedab HaKadosh even thinking? So this is getting even more frustrating. But then I remembered that in the 39th chapter of Tanya, the Alter Rebbe talks about this verse in a Lurianic sense, the way the Arizal explained it. And it made sense to me. One second. Ned the Bakredish purportedly wrote his commentary based on Drush and Sod, Kabbalah. Okay, so he must have studied the writings of the Arizal. For all I know, he was a, inspired by the teaching of the, of the Baal Shem Tev which is based on Lurianic teaching, and probably this is what he means. So the Neder Bakredish set me off in that direction. What do we find in the end of the 39th chapter of Tanya? And how does the Pasuk, the verse, how does it speak to us there? The Alter Rebbe 
in Tanya seeks to demonstrate the importance of and in fact the necessity of emotional engagement in our Avodat Hashem. In other words, although Hamaisa hu ha'iker, although the deed is our creed, it doesn't tell the whole story. If a person only does the right things, he walks the walk, maybe even talks the talk, but his mind and his heart are not in it. That's not really called serving Hashem. That's a problem. And the book of Tanya, as the Alter Rebbe illustrates on the very first page, on the Sharblat, on the opening page, has the focused objective of explaining to you how and why it's possible, and in fact, within reach, close reach, as Moshe Rabbeinu says on the last day of his terrestrial lifetime, that this thing of this Yiddishkeit, this fulfillment of Torah, this living a life of mission, meaning, and purpose, is exceedingly close to every one of us. We can speak it. You can feel it. And last I say to do it. So, okay, to do it. You, you can train anybody to do anything. You can train an actor to say things. You can force yourself to say things. But how about feeling? How are you supposed to feel it? I don't like that. I'm not interested in that. Don't feel it. Be excited about it. It doesn't excite me. Material pursuit, things that taste good and feel good. Now I understand. Now you're talking to me. That interests me. Learning Torah, doing mitzvahs doesn't interest me. So I'll do it. I'll bow my head in subservience. I'll follow the instructions. But my heart's not in it. Well, that's, that's a problem. Your heart has to be in it. And Moshe Rabbeinu said to us, this is his legacy to us, that it's korev elecho. It's very close. It's extremely, extremely attainable. But it doesn't seem that way. Ah, so... Al-Tarebbe, in the book of Tanya says, I'm going to take you in that direction, but I have to just, have to warn you, it's a derech arucha uketzara. It's going to be a long way, but it's a straightforward way. The road's paved, so to speak. Famous story in the Gemara, a man who said, I was never bested until I met this, the sage said, I met this young Jerusalemite, and said, what's the fast way into the city? So this is the short, long way, that's the long, short way. The short, long way was short geographically, but filled with impossible obstacles to scale. The long, short way was a beautifully, easily travelable road. Nicely paved, no obstacles. It was a long way, but you just keep driving. You just keep, and you get straight through the front gate. This is the book of Tanya. So the Alter Rebbe talks about the concept of what we call Habitual mitzvahs. I get used to doing it. No love, no awe, no emotion. So is that a problem? Let me tell you what we're all going to agree with is a problem, and then I'll tell you what Dr. Rebbe says, what else is a problem. All right, everybody's talking about this awful, disgusting, horrible story of this um, masquerading therapist. It's probably a toroscope. A monster, rapist, serial abuser, 
horrid individual. Wicked, evil, horrid individual. So what if, what if, because that's in everybody's mind, what if this person studied Torah, amassed Torah knowledge, with the goal of seducing innocent people with it? Just imagine. Could be such a thing. In fact, could be that's what this guy was. I don't know. Could be. Imagine a person would study Torah because he wants to take advantage of the most vulnerable members of society to exploit and abuse other people. You think that Torah is holy? You think that Torah shines? I don't think so. That's not actually what I think. It says so. It says that Torah goes nowhere. It stays right here in this world of darkness. It doesn't elevate, so to speak, into the heavens. It doesn't make an impact in the, in the, in the highest heavens. Hashem has no nachas in that. Why? <laughs> because Torah study is supposed to bring you closer to God. It's supposed to make you more sensitive and more compassionate. You use this Torah, use God's Torah to abuse other people. Sick. I don't, I mean, I hope, I don't think anybody's going to argue with you about that. The Rebbe comes along and he says, it's more than that. Kasher lamedim when he says, if a person learns Torah, and he's doing mitzvahs. Not because he cares about God, and not because well, relationship with God is nothing. The Rebbe says, I'm very sorry. Then the Torah goes nowhere. Now, most people would say, Torah which is done with an opposite intention, with the intention to harm and to hurt, is valueless. A person who masquerades, going through the motions of putting on filling, fixing a mezuzah, making kiddush, keeping Shabbos, and he's doing it in order to advance his own criminal activities, for sure that's not a mitzvah, you're going to say. Al-Tarebbe says, if a person is only engaged in religious pursuit, not because he wants a relationship with Hashem, not because he wants to be closer to God, but because he feels that he or she has something to gain from it. He wants to be a respected person. He'll be respected if he's knowledgeable. He wants to be respected. He'll be respected if he's pious, or at least seems so. Even if a person doesn't engage in Torah study for the wrong reasons, for bad reasons, for any kind of negative, self-serving purpose, Ella, Rather, like it says, like uh, the Navi Yeshayo in the 29th chapters, uh, chapter of his, of his prophecies, he laments, The prophet laments, he says, which is like habitual mitzvahs, going through the motions. What does it mean, going through the motions? What the Rebbe says, it means, machmas hergel, because nurture became nature. That's what you're doing. That's what we do. That's what we've been doing all along. 
Hirgilu, Velimda, Yavi, Verabai. This is what your parents, your teachers, that's what they taught you to do. That's what you're supposed to do. So that's what you do. So it's not like you're not doing it for something bad. You don't have a bad, baleful intent with the mitzvahs. You're not trying to masquerade as somebody you aren't in order to be able to do something which is criminal and nefarious. Imagine a person who gives tzedakah, he supports Torah institutions so that he could defraud people. It's a Ponzi scheme. I knew somebody like this. He's a Ponzi scheme. He's a liar. He's a cheater. He's ruining people's lives. And he knows that he's ruining the people's lives. It's not, it's not even like an innocent. He's not, there's no innocence here whatsoever. But he has to look like he's a good guy. So part of the role playing that he's pious and that he's trustworthy is he gives money to tzedakah. He's at the Dafyomi class every single morning. How could he be a bad guy? A defrauder? A Ponzi schemer? He's in a, he davens at a minion every day. He learns Dafyomi every day. What are you talking about? He's a great guy. He does everything right. Except the things he doesn't do right. Well, it's much worse than that. All these things he does right so he could defraud you. It's all a scheme. It's all an evil game. It's, it's a manipulation. He abuses God. He abuses Judaism for his own selfish, mean-spirited, criminal activities. What do you think? That Torah is valuable? I think Hashem has nachas. Well, at least he's learning Torah. At least he gave tzedakah. So this is not such a bad person. He's not trying to abuse God, abuse Judaism. He's just, his heart's not in it. He's going through the motions. Doesn't feel, doesn't feel anything. So Dalta Rebbe says that even though factually it may be very pious, maybe going through all the motions, if his heart is not in it, he's any asiklishma, then it's a problem. The mitzvahs can't go anywhere. Because for the sake of God, if you're not going to fire up your emotions, it's not going to work. At least the latent emotions that we believe is there. Every one of us has it. If you don't fire that up, it's not going to work. If you don't take, you don't bring it forth, you don't bring your neshama forth, forget about it. So if a person feels strongly about his or her Judaism and they come to the conclusion, I want to be a good Jew. I don't know, I just feel I want this. This is what my parents said, it's what my grandparents said. I want to do this, I want to do it well, and I want to devote myself, and I care about it, and I don't want to be distanced from Hashem. I don't want to be ashamed in front of my ancestors. He's sincere about this. says that's, that's something. It doesn't have to be a raging fire of love. It doesn't have to be an ocean of passion, but there's some kind of sincere emotional involvement. A mitzvah like that is beautiful. It's meaningful. But if a person has no feelings for God, doesn't care about God, what, who's God? Never heard of him. But what are you doing? I'm, I'm doing stuff. Are you serving God? God. How, how does he even get into this conversation? I don't know. You're putting on tefillin. <laughs> I'm putting on tefillin because, you know, it's a... Whatever. That's what I've been doing my whole life. I'm going to stop doing it now. What do my mother-in-law say? And what do my friends say? So I do it. That's not serving God. That's a problem. So when a person is going to do something, for example, for somebody else, 
כי כמו שאין אדם עשר דב בשביל חווי דלו מעלס רצוני, אלא אם כן אהב היה ממנו. If you do something for somebody else, what's your motivation? Why did you go out of your way for somebody? Why did you buy them a birthday card? Why did you bother reaching out to them? If you don't love or at least respect them. The answer is I wouldn't do it otherwise. I only do it because I love or respect them. Or, I mean, there is one other possibility. I don't love them. I don't respect them. I need something from them. Oh, that's a different story. Yeah, so why are you all of a sudden being nice to me? What do you need from me? Nobody likes that. Nobody appreciates being abused. Nobody appreciates being respected or being loved when it's fake. You think Hashem appreciates it then? You can't serve Hashem. It doesn't work like that. There's got to be some whiff, some kind of emotional involvement, some level of love, some level of respect. And he says, love itself doesn't cut it, because love itself is just what I love. There has to be a level of respect also, level of awe. There has to be Ava and Yira, and these are, so to speak, the proverbial wings with which the mitzvah is able to fly. So what happens to a lot of our Yiddishkeit? A lot of mitzvahs which are, which are done mindlessly. A lot of Torah which is studied because of one reason or the other, neither of which match what we just described. No love, no respect, no awe. In fact, not even thinking about God. What happens to all that Yiddishkeit? There's a humorous but painful story told about a yeshiva student who leaves a very famous academy of Talmudic study and he joins a Hasidic yeshiva. And he meets his erstwhile Rosh Hashiva. And the Rosh Hashiva says, Why did you leave our yeshiva? Why did you leave our yeshiva? We were learning so well. You were growing. You were gaining knowledge, length, and breadth. Gives him this excuse, that excuse. Breakfast is better. He says, Well, you never cared about breakfast. He says, Well, you know, I have better friends. You had wonderful friends here. Every excuse he shoots down. So finally, the boy says, I'll tell you the truth. Rebbe says, in that yeshiva, they teach you how to read people's mind. And I was like, I just, I couldn't resist that. He just says, please, that's ridiculous. The Talmud says, Ein adam Nobody knows what's really in somebody else's heart. He says, you know it's in somebody's heart? He says, yeah, yeah, I do. Rosh Hashiva says, okay. I'm going to close my eyes now for 30 seconds. And you tell me what I was thinking. So the Rosh Hashiva closes his eyes. Thirty long seconds go by. He opens his eyes and he says to the boy, so what was I thinking? And without batting an eyelash, the yeshiva student says to his former teacher, he says, you were thinking about God. The Rosh Hashiva says, I could swear in a Sefer Torah, I wasn't thinking about God for one nanosecond. The boy said, I know. That's why I left you, Yeshiva. It's a painful story. It's possible for a person to study God's Torah without thinking about God. 
intellectual pursuit. It's fascinating stuff. I want to be literate. I want to know about my history. I want to know about Jewish jurisprudence. I want to know what fired up the minds and hearts, the imaginations of great people in the past. I want to study. And it's fascinating, intriguing, interesting, uplifting. Did you mention uh, spiritual? Did you mention God? Do you know that the first Beit HaMikdash was destroyed? It says, They didn't make a blessing on the Torah. That's why the Beit HaMikdash is destroyed. A blessing on the Torah, it's not a biblical commandment. It's not even a rabbinic commandment. It's a prayer we do. So he didn't make a blessing on the Torah. That's not the meaning. They studied Torah, but not with a sense of one reverence. It wasn't God's Torah. It was a cultural curio, an academic, secular pursuit. That is the greatest offense. It's the greatest turning of one's back against Hashem. What happens to so much Yiddishkeit, which gets done in a mindless way? What happens to mitzvahs, which are done with far less than good intentions? When a person is engaged in Yiddishkeit without the right reasons, for some kind of personal selfish gain, he wants glory, honor. He's going to be respected by his peers. He wants to be a Talmud Chacham. He's a great rabbi. You know how many fake rabbis there are out there? People who love the title rabbi, ignoramuses who don't know from an olive to a base. They're everywhere. What do they do it for? What do you want to be called rabbi for? It's funny. Everybody gives you medical opinions today. All the experts are on Facebook. But, but they don't call themselves doctor. You say, are you a doctor? Say, no, no, I'm not a doctor, but you know, I'm just a smart guy. But everybody wants to be a rabbi. Another one of my pet peeves. Why do they want to be called rabbi for? Be respected. Who, wants to, who doesn't want to be respected? I'm Jewish. I'm living in a Jewish milieu. I want to be respected. They imagine, they think that rabbis are respected. I'm not so sure it's true, but that's what they imagine. So what if a person learns Torah for that reason? So the Alter Rebbe says, that comes from klipa. Klipa is the husk, it's extraneous. It's not what God's purpose was. And therefore, it, 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 it embodies, it's what embodies, what frames the Torah study. And the Torah is like an exile. This is a little scary. So what happens to all that Torah? What happens to all those mitzvahs? Okay, I'm not saying that most of us are involved in some kind of criminal activity and using a Yiddishkeit camouflage as a cover. I'm not saying that you're coming to a Torah class or involved in a minion because you're trying to gain the trust of investors when you intend to defraud them. I'm not, I'm not saying that. I'm not suggesting that there are a dime a dozen abusers who walk around gaining Torah knowledge so that they can exploit vulnerable people. There are such sick, demented, horrible individuals, but it's very rare. But there are a lot of people who are doing things 
mindlessly or to please somebody else. A lot of people. Can I say most? Or most of us? Most of the time? So what are we doing it for? If it's actually pointless. Now the Rebbe says, it's true that that Torah study is framed with the klipa. It's stuck in a husk. It's true. But it's temporary. It's temporary. It's only lefisha. Ad ashayasa tshuva. When you do tshuva, the Gemara in Yuma tells us on page 86 that tshuva mevir refuel elam, that tshuva brings healing to this world. And healing, then a mystical level means that a sin is like something which is sick, diseased, a diseased kind of life, separated from a healthy, normative source. And when we behave that way, what happens is that, that we lose our connection. But the good news is that we can regenerate life. Tshuva brings healing. This is why our rabbis told us in Gemara Psachim on page 50, A person should do the right thing, even if it's not for the right reasons, because, because out of doing it for the wrong reasons, eventually we do it for the right reasons. And here the Alter Rebbe says something absolutely unbelievable. Shebevadai, that it is certain. Soifoy lasses tshuva, that in the end, everybody will do tshuva. And if not in this lifetime, in a future lifetime. In this iteration, in this incarnation, or in a future incarnation. How are we so sure? Because, in the words that are found in Shmuel Beis, because the banished one shall not ever remain in banished. The literal level of that Pasuk doesn't speak to us in Shara B'Tochen. But in the way Reb Chaim Vital explains it in Shara Psukim, which putatively, is what the Ned of HaKadosh has in mind because he writes a commentary which is based on Kabbalah. Reb Chaim Vital taught in the name of the Arizal that it means, and I quote, Kikol yutuknu. All bodies, all souls that are embodied in the end will be rectified, will be fixed. Terem Bayagula before Mashiach comes. Even a tiny spark of holiness, every neshama will be fixed. Every neshama will be made whole. Every neshama will come home. And that means not only every neshama, but every ounce of holiness. Because as the Rebbe says in Lakotasikas, that even when the mitzvah is filled or laden or surrounded or buried in garbage, in horrific stuff, there's still a spark of holiness there. There's still a mitzvah there. It has to be redeemed. It has to be cleansed. It has to be refined. It has to be extracted and elevated. What happens to a really horrible person? Somebody else, a tzaddik, will come along later. A different iteration of that neshama will take those diamonds from the cesspool and clean them 
and maybe it's hardened, and maybe it's petrified, and he'll find a way of chipping all the garbage and this, 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 this disgusting, horrible stuff off, and he'll be able to redeem the light. <laughs> By the way, that's the other meaning of the word tikkun olam that people love to talk about. You understand what's going on over here? By the way, this thing is brought in the name of Chachme HaKabbalah in Hilchas Tamatayda. In the fourth chapter, Halacha Gimel, the Altarebbe quotes it from Chachme HaKabbalah in Halacha. In Halacha, no less. He says, what should be with a person who's learning Torah for the wrong reasons? Altarebbe says, let him learn Torah. Because in the end, every kind of good activity will be made good again. It will be, its goodness will be revealed. It'll be extrapolated. It'll be extracted from its darkness. It'll be pulled out of the black hole and it'll be returned to its source. They say that Hasidim used to fabreng about this Perik of Tanya. They used to say, imagine, imagine they used to say, how we have to look at life. How a single act of tshuva, how a sense of yearning and recommitment and rejuvenation can actually be affecting things we did years ago, decades ago, even things that were done by others who shared the same root soul as us from previous incarnations. And all of it can be elevated through tshuva. You see what it means to make a bal tshuva, to become a bal tshuva? It's huge. So I'm thinking about this. I'm thinking, maybe this is what Rabbeinu B'chai is talking about. Maybe this is what Rabbeinu B'chai says, if we can't trust, if we don't, we're not aware that at every moment, that even if I do a mitzvah for the wrong reasons, I have to believe in eternity. And I have to believe in the eternity of a mitzvah. And I have to believe that Olam Haba, which represents the essence, the goodness of that mitzvah, that it will be redeemed. Because most of the time, I'm not so mindful. I know about you, I'm not so mindful. I'm ashamed to tell you that I'm not doing things lishma for the sake of Hashem. And there's all kinds of other reasons that we might have. All kinds of other selfish, personal reasons that might motivate us to do the right thing. So we're not doing the right thing for the right reasons. And in that case, what's happening? What's the value of it? This can bring you down. Ben Bechaya says, you have to know that when it comes to Elam Haba, first of all, that you have to trust in Hashem. You have to put your trust. Your trust is... You have to know that HaKadosh Baruch Hu recompenses that in the end, a mitzvah is a mitzvah, that in the end, everything has its value and whatever value it has, it will equal that value. <laughs> it's like, it's a lame metaphor. Imagine a person is working and he's getting paid currency, but he knows that this currency is being phased out. And the money he's getting is going to be worthless. It's worthless currency. So he's like, what am I working for? And then he's promised that in the end, somebody will come along, all the old currency will be bought. Don't you worry about it. You can't get your money out now, but eventually you will be able to get it. It's going in a bank account. It's a cryptocurrency. Eventually it's redeemable. Don't give up. Keep toiling, keep working. The Gemara said, Why did the Gemara have to tell you? If it was such a simple thing, if everybody's doing the right thing, why did the Gemara have to come along and say, oh, by the way, you should know, you must do the right thing even if you're doing it for the wrong reasons because in the end, it'll work out. <laughs> Rabbis told us because that's uh, the matter of fact. 
Rabbeinu B'chaya has to address this because it's a reality we have to deal with. You have to have betochen. Betochen in le'yidach menun nidach. Betochen in the eternity. Betochen in the idea that ultimately deep down every one of us loves Hashem and that that love is chelki Hashem amra nafshi. In the end, we're really, without even knowing it, motivated by the drive for a deeper relationship. Think about this. The word mitoich can be understood as out of. Out of. On a literal level it means that from doing the right thing for the wrong reason, eventually you will come to do the right thing for the right reason. So, you'll come to learn Torah. You learn Torah. In the words of the Gemara elsewhere, Hamor it's a Gemara, it's a Medrash Echarabba. In the end, there's a luminary, there's a, a brilliance in Torah, a light in Torah. It'll pull you along. It'll, it'll spirit you along. It'll uplift you in the end. In other words, in other words, that there's this, there's this business of just keep doing the right thing. Keep doing the right thing. Because in, in the end, you'll do the right thing for the right reasons. But there's a deeper meaning to this. And the deeper meaning is that even though right now you're doing the right thing for the wrong reasons, or so you think. You think you're doing this because of what he or she or they will say. That's why you think you're doing it. But deep down, mitoich, if you go really, really, really digging under all those external levels of consciousness at the core mitoich inside the shalei lishma lishma ultimately every yid yearns to be close to Hashem we may not be aware of it but it is a latent truth and because it's a latent truth tshuva is like shatters all these barriers all these things which get in the way it just shatters them when it shatters it suddenly your path is clear. And you have to not only believe this, because you can believe in all kinds of things. It doesn't change the way you live. You have to live with it. You have to have betochen in it. You have to trust in it. And not only you have to trust and have betochen, that in the end, you will get the mitzvah will be, its value will, it can be redeemed in the end. It's not going to be lost. Rebbeinu B'chai goes further and he says there's another level. And that's the concept not only is what the mitzvah is worth, but then there's mechesed habayri yasala. So I want to suggest that the first thing is talking about Gan Eden. He's talking about you know, the Garden of Eden, so to speak, the paradise where neshamas go, the afterlife. But there's another afterlife here. And the Neda Bakredish says, uh -huh, this afterlife, the chesed, that's ayin leiraso. That no eye has seen. The Rebbe says, in a mimer, lahoven in in the Rebbe says, that the meaning of the word of the Gemara and Brachas, Kol Hanavim Kululay Nisnabu El Yemesa Mashiach, Avala Oilam Haba Ainle Rosa. All the prophets spoke about the coming of Mashiach, the Messianic era, but not the era of resurrection. That this is referring to the deepest levels of divine revelation and of experiences that will only become part of our life after that period of the resurrection which is far beyond the mitzvahs 
that we actually do. So why does he talk about Hasidim and Nevi'im? <laughs> say something wild. When Mashiach will come, when we go past the era of Mashiach, we will all be Hasidim. And we'll all be Nevi'im. It says when Mashiach comes, Kulam Yedu Aisi, we'll all know God. It says, Ayin Ba'ayin Yiru, we're all going to see God. We're all going to hear the voice of God. This is our ultimate destiny. We will all be prophets someday. We will all be super pious someday. And we have to know that that's inherently a part of us. Nalta Rebbe, in the 14th chapter of Tanya, speaks about the promise that we make to Hashem, that we're forced, so to speak, to make to Hashem, to heed tzaddik. An oath is administered to every neshama digmar and Nida says, be righteous. Don't be wicked. Nalta Rebbe explains in detail what does it mean the level of a tzaddik, what does it mean a rasha. And he says, in case you can't become a tzaddik, which means really like to break the atmosphere of your Yetzirah, to be able to become weightless and freed of the things that weigh us down. He says, because most people can't attain the level of Tehid Tzaddik, so that's why he say, at least Al Tehid Rasha. Don't openly or overtly violate the will of Hashem. Fight the good fight and, and vanquish your Yetzirah continuously. So then why do we get this oath be a tzaddik? So the Alter Rebbe says, because if you strive for this kind of holiness, maybe maybe there'll be like a spark of a tzaddik can like impregnate itself in you. Maybe we can be connected to the neshama of a tzaddik. And, and, and as the Kabbalists taught us, we recognize tzaddikim because there's a part of us that recognizes innately a tzaddik. We know what it is. And then the amech kulam tzaddik in the Mishnah says we're all potentially capable of relating to this loftier reality. You have to trust in that too. When you trust in that too, <laughs> life is different. Life is different because you realize the value that's attached to every single moment of life. That even if my devotion is delinquent and deficient, if I'm doing what Hashem told me to do, I have to trust that the sparks will all come home. And I have to believe that in the end, we reach the greatest levels, the greatest heights. The truth is that I prepared another whole thing. I had a mimer from the Alter Rebbe and from the Tzemach Tzedek and Derech Mitzvah Secha and a mimer from the Rebbe Rashab from Ateres and from the Friedrich Gerber from Tafshin to develop this whole idea of the different levels of schar. How the level of schar, the level of rewarding Gan Eden, is the mitzvahs as we relate or understand them, which is filtered through the prism of Torah. That the level of the coming of the resurrection means that we're able to relate to the mitzvah itself. And ultimately, how the Rebbe explains in the Mimer, that takes us beyond all of this. And we're out of time. So, whatever. There's a lot more. <laughs> when, the, when the Melech used to read the Torah to the Jewish people at Hakel, every seven years they would gather all the Jewish people together in the Vesem Migdash. And it was like to recreate the scene of an inspiring scene, an uplifting scene that would be reminiscent of Sinai. So the king would read from a Torah scroll and then he would say, Yes, Masha Kosovkan, there's much more written here. Much more than I read. 
There's much more than I read here, my friends. But this is the gist, at least, a kernel of my humble suggestion of maybe this is what Rabbeinu Baha'i is saying, and that's why it's so important for us to have this trust and to have this certainty, because it changes the way we actually live our lives today. Maybe there'll be a chance yet to make up, to share uh, the other things that I prepared. I, I hope that this has opened your eyes. It certainly opened my eyes, transformed my view of many things, including the pshat in this holy book. I hope it's uplifted you. I hope that it's going to make you a better yid. I hope that together we will serve Hashem with ever-increasing vigor and emotion and devotion. And that as a result, we should be zeicher to become chasidim and neviim with the coming of Mashiach b'mheira u'biyameinu amen. Thanks so much for joining. If you liked, so like, share. If you haven't yet, subscribe, youtube.com forward slash Mendel Kaplan. And I look forward to seeing you in the future and sharing words of Hashem's holy Torah together. Have a beautiful day. And again, thank you so much for joining. Kol Tov.